Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. I'm not voting for Kevin McCarthy. I'm not voting for him tomorrow. I'm not voting for him on the floor. And I am certain that there is a critical mass of people who hold my precise view. And so the sooner we can sort of dispense with the notion that Kevin's going to be speaker, then we can get to the important work. Ah, yes, the Republican Party in chaos, fresh from their big midterm letdown. The knives are out for Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. And Donald Trump's ploy to try to avoid prosecution quickly announced that he's a candidate for president. But that means nothing to prosecutors, right? And we are keeping a close eye on developments in Poland following a reported explosion near its border with Ukraine. Unconfirmed news reports saying the blast was caused by a Russian rocket. Stay with us for any breaking developments on that story. We begin the readout tonight with Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the House Republican Caucus and his nearly decade long and rather desperate quest to become Speaker of the House. As we speak, Republicans are inches away from gaining a slim House majority. Hard to call it a win, given that the party went into last week's election fully drinking the Kool-Aid, the hyperpartisan polls, aggregators, and conservative media fed them. Earlier today, House Republicans went to work electing their leadership team. McCarthy, who first sought to be Speaker in 2015 until he abruptly quit, faced an immediate challenge from one of the key members of the coup plotters and MAGA members, Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs. McCarthy ultimately won the support of 188 members of his caucus, far short of the actual number needed to become speaker. So the real test comes in January when he will need 218 votes on the House floor to get the gavel. Nominating Andy Biggs was a shot across the bow from the Tea Party-based Freedom Caucus. If McCarthy wants to be speaker, he will have to get through them first. And it's not at all clear that he'll actually get the votes he needs. It was a less than auspicious start for the Republican Party that's still trying to figure out what the hell happened and why their extremist candidates were rejected by so many Americans, despite favorable gerrymandered odds. Someone please send these people a copy of the Dobbs decision so they can catch up. Yesterday, moderate Republican from Nebraska Don Bacon told NBC News that if the Republican conference cannot agree on electing McCarthy or any other Republican as speaker, then he would be willing to work with Democrats to elect a moderate Republican for the job. Marjorie Taylor, soon to be ex-Mrs. Green, and Jim Jordan, who are anything but McCarthy stands, well, they don't really like that idea, which is why they are supporting McCarthy. Here's the issue. If we don't unify behind Kevin McCarthy, we're opening up the door for the Democrats to be able to recruit some of our Republicans, and they may only need one or two since we don't know what we will have in the majority, how many seats we'll have. And I will not allow that to happen. Green later told reporters that the real reason that she's backing Kevin is because the next majority leader, Steve Scalise, you know, the one who said he was David Duke without the baggage. Well, he promised her investigations into Nancy Pelosi and into the Department of Justice treatment of people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, of course. McCarthy's presence in the upper management of the House caucus has never been a profile in courage. Outgoing Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who was his former ally and friend, only to be abandoned in his quest for power, 
warned the public months ago. He's been completely unfaithful to, uh, to the Constitution and demonstrated a total lack of understanding of the significance and the importance of, of the role of Speaker. So I don't believe he should be Speaker of the House. And while House Republicans were in disarray, Senate Republicans, well, they're positively fighting. Florida Senator Rick Scott, who was in charge of helping Republican candidates get elected but failed, announced that he will challenge Mitch McConnell for minority leader. McConnell welcomed the challenge, but then reminded reporters why Republicans failed. We underperformed among independents and moderates because their impression of many of the people in our party and leadership roles is that they're involved in chaos, negativity, uh, excessive uh, attacks, and it, it frightened uh, independent and moderate Republican voters. The Republican-on-Republican cage matches come nearly 24 hours after Arizona, home of Barry Goldwater and John McCain, said uh, no thank you to the well-groomed MAGA heiress Carrie Lake. Her loss was the third out of the four statewide races for Republicans and stands as a stubborn reminder that the mega-MAGA party just ain't working, at least in Arizona, which has reaffirmed its rejection of Trump continuously since he lost in 2020. In just a few hours, the leader of that faltering party, Donald Trump, is set to look that failure in the face and say, please, sir, may I have some more? Trump is expected to announce his third run for president from Mar-a-Lago, where he stashed all those classified documents. Earlier today, he was greeted by this banner. Look at that, which reads, you lost again, Donald DeSantis 2024. <laughs> Joining me now is Congressman Ro Khanna of California and Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large for The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor. I mean, Congressman, it's so bad that Liz Cheney is tweeting Red Rum tweets, uh, you know, re-nuking Carrie Lake for losing. Like, she's, like, trolling, and she didn't even win her re-election. That is how confident she feels that the MAGA movement is battered. Um what is this speakership going to look like? Is there a possibility that there could be a deal cut, for, to your knowledge, between Democrats who will have a lot of seats? They will be very close to 218 themselves. They'll have 217. We don't know what they're going to have. Is there a possibility that Democrats would cut a deal with some Republicans to elect someone else speaker instead of Kevin McCarthy? I think... I think everything is on the table. You know, I'm part of a group meeting with Republicans right now uh, to see if we can actually uh, return power to rank and file members. They don't want a strong uh, speaker if it's a Republican. So uh, I think everything is in flux. And, and you know, the, the great thing, Joy, is that more people are talking about whether Kevin McCarthy is going to be speaker or what's happening in the Senate than what Donald Trump's doing. And I think finally uh, he's lost the attention of people. Uh, well, maybe not of the base. Uh, you know, Charlie Sykes, I don't think there's any risk yeah. that there'll be a strong speaker if Kevin McCarthy is anywhere near this conversation. Oh, yeah. He's not a strong human being. This is, a, a, let me just play a little soundbite. Th just for those of you who've forgotten who Kevin is, and, and here he is. <laughs> uh, I've, I've had it with this guy. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. Um, nobody can defend that and nobody should defend it. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. And then at a, at a, at a fundraiser in 2022, he Ooh. called Trump the secret weapon, a secret weapon of Republicans. This guy doesn't even know where he stands. He has no spine. He's not going to be a strong speaker if he, if he gets the gavel. Charlie, your thoughts? 
<laughs> well, one of his super, yeah, one of his superpowers, of course, is his uh, willingness to self-humiliate, and it has been <laughs> humiliation all the way down. And this, of course, is the irony that that Kevin McCarthy um, has been willing to give up so much of his character and his power in order to get that gavel. But um, the gavel is just going to be more humiliation for him because, you know, this nutcase caucus is going to insist on gelding him if he's going to get the votes. Even if he gets the votes, uh, he's not going to have an effective governing majority. And all of this escalated awfully quickly, didn't it? I mean, the all out uh, Republican civil war, um, you know, Republican against Republican in the Senate, uh, knives out in the House of Representatives, Matt Gates taking shots at Marjorie Taylor Greene. And then, of course, in the middle of all of this, Donald Trump figures this is the ideal time to remind everybody that I am the symbol and the agent of all of this dysfunction and this failure. So um, this has really been quite a week for Republicans, which um, in, in the past have enjoyed watching Democrats in disarray. And they're saying, really, hold my beer. You haven't seen anything like this in a very long time. The media doesn't know what to do because media Democrats in disarray is like literally a media meme. They just take yeah. it out of a box every year and, and right. roll it out. But I mean, Congressman, I wonder if you have some insight into what this house will be like because marjorie taylor um i don't know if she still uses green i know that there's something going on there marriage wise but um she's vowing that what they want to do with their majority what they want to do is investigate hunter biden they want to impeach joe biden they'll just make up a reason they want to you know go after you know they, they want to do theater right um they want to impeach mayorkas because i don't know what they think he did wrong is that what you anticipate the House is going to be like? Because it doesn't sound like they want to deal with inflation and crime, which they claimed were the reasons they were running. Sure. Unfortunately, that's all they talk about. And in the committee hearings, the, all they can talk about is Hunter Biden uh, investigating the president. But I think it's going to backfire. And for all those stories about Democrats in disarray, look, this is a Democratic Congress that passed the infrastructure bill, that brought semiconductor manufacturing back, that passed the largest climate investment, that passed the American Rescue Plan that cut child poverty in half. It's one of the most successful presidential terms in modern history with some of the slimmest majorities. And I think it's actually going to be seen as one of the most unified Congresses. And now when the other side may have a majority, you see, they, they don't even have one plan, let alone the four major things we passed. Well, they do have plans in the Senate. Now, Charlie, I do want to talk about this, because one of the things that I think Donald Trump exposed is that the elite, the financial elite of the Republican Party had no connection to the base. The base right. wanted what Donald Trump was selling, and the financial elite want massive tax cuts for the rich. That The, the financial elite are now back in a big way, saying they're going to fight Mitch McConnell. You have Rick Scott, who wants to challenge um, McConnell, who was a sycophant to Trump for leadership. But Rick Scott is not only the guy who was in charge of getting Republicans reelected, yeah. but his plan is to take Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid and put them on five year tracks to be dismantled. His plan. I mean, this is a guy who presided over one point seven trillion dollar Medicare and TRICARE fraud yeah. and then got elected governor of Florida. So this guy has presided over crookedness. He wants to essentially make old people poor. <laughs> and so he's this is the financial elite saying we don't like the Trump party. Give us back the party that's going to throw grandma over the side of the bridge. 
Well, real man of political genius. Look, Rick, Rick, Rick Scott disagreed with Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell said, uh, let's not stand for anything. Let's just uh, you know, have a, be a blank slate like we were in 2020. Rick Scott came up with a lot of proposals and ideas which were absolutely toxic. But this is an interesting point. I mean, here's a Republican Party that has no agenda whatsoever. Um, they could be engaging in introspection about, about the extremism, about uh, the, the effect of, of Dobbs. Um, they could be talking about what their plans are about inflation. Um, uh, various other policy issues, but they can't do that because they know that Donald Trump and the base are frankly not interested in any of that. It, it, it's, it's beside the point. This is the problem of becoming the cult of personality. So you have, a, you have a party that actually right now doesn't stand for anything other than being in opposition. So at a moment like this, all they can do is turn on one another. Because you'll notice that with all the chaos we've been discussing, they're not debating issues. They're not debating principles or ideas, are they? It's all about power. It's all about ego. And it's all about loyalty to the orange one. Because they don't care about these issues. I've said it before. I'll say they it again. Don't. And the financial elite want to replace what they see as the rabble of the party who like Trump with more people who will give them more tax cuts for the rich. That's all they really care about. Uh, let's go back to you, uh, Congressman, because there is another big news issue. And I know that you sit on the, the, the House Armed Services Committee. What are your thoughts about what's happening in Poland right now? We know there was a missile strike. We're still not clear on all of the details. But what's your perspective and what are House members saying about it? Oh, we don't well, know it's a missile strike. I should take that back. We know there was some sort of an explosion in Poland, and there is a suspicion that there might be something to do with Russia. Well, it's deeply concerning. Obviously, NATO is, Poland is a NATO ally. The first thing we need to do is find out, was this a deliberate strike? Was it accidental? Uh, did it come from the Russians? But I want to just... Uh, commend uh, President Biden and Secretary Blinken, as well as Jake Sullivan. They have stood firmly with Ukraine, but at the same time, they are uh, in touch with the Russian counterparts to make sure that there is no escalation. Uh, and they have been very responsible in standing with Ukraine, but being uh, cautious of not having uh, accidental nuclear war strikes. So I, I believe the administration is handling this uh, very responsibly. Are you concerned that if uh, the House you know, puts uh, we don't know who would be in charge of, uh, you know, the equivalent of, of, of the committee that you're on. Are you concerned that somebody that's like a MAGA person, that like a Marjorie Taylor <laughs> might get that gavel? Is that the kind of deals you're seeing being made? I am concerned. I mean, I'm concerned that the House is just going to turn into uh, launching personal grievances against this president and questioning his integrity. You know, I've said to my Republican colleagues, when Trump was in office, uh, I question Jared Kushner because the president decided to put him in charge of Middle East peace. I never went after a single person in Trump's family who wasn't actually in the White House. Hunter Biden has nothing to do with policy. It, there is a cruelty. There is a cruelty to this Republican Party where they're going after people's families. Yeah, it's what they do. It's the theater that they're trying to create. Uh, Congressman Rokana, thank you. Charlie Sykes, thank you very much. I'm next on the readout. What thank makes you. Trump What makes Trump think that he can ex escape prosecution for taking classified documents since prosecutors have vigorously prosecuted others for far less? Well, maybe the fact that he has yet to be prosecuted for taking classified documents, his efforts to keep that lucky streak going when the readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, 
which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Later tonight, Donald Trump could be announcing a third run for president, a full two years before the election. Now, if you're wondering about the timing, I have a good idea why he's doing it. But first, I want to remind you about a woman named Reality Winner. In 2017, Winner was a 25-year-old Air Force veteran working as an NSA contractor when she leaked some of the earliest evidence of Russia's attack on our voting system. She printed out a single classified NSA report and sent it to the news outlet, The Intercept. Winner was quickly arrested, due in large part to the carelessness of some of the journalists at The Intercept who failed to protect her identity as their source. Now, we could have a long conversation about why the folks who protected now Russian citizen Edward Snowden didn't protect her, but I digress. Reality Winner was sentenced to more than five years in prison. In her case, she asserted that she was trying to defend the United States against Russia. But it didn't matter. Even with noble intentions, taking classified documents is against the law. And that brings me back to the twice impeached former president. Among the many investigations Trump is facing is a DOJ probe regarding the thousands of documents Trump took to Mar-a-Lago when he left the White House, including hundreds that were marked classified. Some of those classified documents were so sensitive that only a small number of people inside the U.S. government would be authorized to even see them. To this day, Trump still has not offered any explanation for why he would need to have any of these materials in his possession, except for false claims that they are his. Again, his reasons don't even matter. It's still a crime. So if Reality Winner received more than five years in prison for taking one classified document, why is Trump still free as a bird after taking hundreds of them? That he not only squirreled away at his Florida golf resort, but actively prevented from being returned to the National Archives and the DOJ following their multiple requests. Trump's impending announcement tonight may be an attempt to extend his impunity by getting the Justice Department to back off by claiming that any investigation at this point would be considered a partisan attack against a political rival to the sitting president. Well, some legal experts are pushing back. Andrew Weissman, the former FBI general counsel and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigative team, tweeted, Time's up, DOJ. The rule of law requires Trump to be held to account, as others have been, for like crimes. It's been over 14 weeks since the Mar-a-Lago search and many months since the DOJ investigation began. Timely action is needed. Andrew Weissman joins me now, and I'm just going to let you expand on that point, sir, because I cannot get it to, ex to, to work in my brain how Reality Winner was arrested in days, and this man is still walking around and free to make an announcement he's running for president. Joy, that is exactly the right thing to be focused on, because I also think that is exactly what the attorney general will be focused on, which is making sure that Donald Trump 
whether he says he's running for president or not is irrelevant, that he be treated exactly the same as other people who were either charged or not charged by the department. In other words, you've got somebody who is a judge for many, many, many years who's now head of the Department of Justice, and he's going to be looking at cases like Reality Winner. And frankly, there are scores of others of people who did things that were far less egregious than Donald Trump who were charged. And that is what's going to be guiding Merrick Garland. It's going to be making sure that Donald Trump is treated exactly the same. Um, and my reading of those cases is it's impossible to read those cases and not um, come to the conclusion that Donald Trump, in order to have a rule of law, should be charged. Um, and, and, and by the know, way, the fact that he runs for office, mm -hmm. I mean, that's irrelevant. He may want to do that so he can have a public relations point of saying, oh, this is why they, they did it. But we all know that's not the case. We all know he was under investigation for many, many, many months when he wasn't running for office. So he's going to do that to sort of have the upper hand on the public relations front. But I don't think that's going to in any way stop Merrick Garland. And right. And, and I mean, first of all, just really for, for, for we're going to do a quick Constitution 101. What is the legal difference in status between reality winner as a citizen and Donald Trump as a former president? What's the difference between the two of them, legally speaking? Just in terms of how they're Zero. treated by the law. None. Okay. Thank you. Zero. None. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, right. Donald Trump and me, Donald Trump and you, we're all the same. He's just a citizen. So I want to go through this because some people exactly. are saying, well, there's a sense of, pro you know, we don't want to go after prominent people. We know Rod Blagojevich was the whole governor of Illinois and, and went to jail. Right. So we know that you can put former officials in jail. But I want to go on the people who say, well, he's prominent. David Petraeus. He is an army general. He is a war hero. He served his country honorably, former CIA director. He was sentenced to two years of probation and a $100,000 fine. And what he did was he took a small amount of classified material and shared it with his girlfriend who was writing a book. San Samuel Berger, they call him Sandy Berger. He was a national security advisor to a whole president, to President Clinton. He went into a skiff, which is those secure rooms you can look at documents. He took one of them out. He was um, sentenced to a $50,000 fine, 100 hours of community service, because he reached a plea deal. He pleaded out. But he was he was charged with a crime. So even if it was that minimal level, but what Trump did is magnified by thousands to what those two did because he took hundreds of classified documents and thousands of documents. How would the DOJ look at it when they do it by degree? If you look at Petraeus and you look at Trump. Well, I think there are all sorts of factors that you would look at. Um, on the plus side for Donald Trump is if the government doesn't have evidence that he actually disseminated these. In other words, Reality Winner gave the documents to somebody. That is that is something that is, you know, an aggravating factor for her. But on the other hand, Sandy Berger um, took very few documents. He didn't disseminate them. That is a far less egregious case than Donald Trump. And also Donald Trump has a, has a complete history of obstructing the very investigation um, so he has a, a series of aggravating factors, as well as the fact that he is prominent 
in in many ways is not a, a mitigating factor that he should be um, held to a, in my view, a higher standard. When you are a role model and you are somebody who is the head of law enforcement of this country, the leader of the free world, you should be like Caesar's wife. I mean, a completely above reproach. Um, and so I, I think that that sort of analysis, what we are engaging in now, Joy, and what you've been focusing on, is exactly what the department's going to be doing. And the fact that somebody is prominent does not um, mean that they don't get prosecuted. It is not a mitigating factor. As I said, I think that is an aggravating factor. And if he runs for office, he runs for office, but he's still a civilian like the rest of us, as you've said. And he, the rule of law means that we are all treated equally. And I really am confident that Merrick Garland is going to do that. Yeah, because there's no other choice, because otherwise we have a king, because there is no other figure who is above the law except a king. And he definitely is not our king. Andrew Weissman, thank you. We always appreciate your brilliance on this show. And still ahead, it's complicated how Georgia's new voting laws are messing with the upcoming Senate runoff. And if you think that this isn't totally intentional, think again. Senator John Ossoff joins me next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. We should be striving to give the people of Georgia fair access to the ballot box. We just saw an election in November where the people of Georgia made it clear that they want to use Saturday voting. Hundreds of thousands of voters, Georgia voters, voted on Saturday. They have demonstrated what they want. And there's nothing in the law as it is currently written to prevent it. As the Georgia Senate runoff campaign kicks into high gear, Senator Raphael Warnock announced today that he is filing a lawsuit to allow Georgians to vote early on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Because of a law Republicans passed in 2016, it is currently illegal in Georgia to have early voting on any day that immediately follows a state holiday. And Friday, November 25th, is technically a state holiday, celebrating the birthday of none other than Confederate general and literal traitor Robert E. Lee. That one day of voting is even more essential after the Republicans' Jim Crow 2.0 law passed last year, cutting the state's runoff calendar in half. It used to be nine weeks. Now it's down to four. Joining me now is Democratic Senator John Ossoff of Georgia. Um, and, and I do want to ask you about that. It, it, what is the level of concern among Georgia Democrats that cutting off that final Saturday of voting, it's hard enough to get people to come out for a special election. How concerned are you and fellow state Georgia state Democrats that it's going to hurt the turnout of um, 
folks who want to reelect Warnock. Joy, good evening, and thank you for having me. And we are determined to ensure that every eligible voter in Georgia has the opportunity to participate in this process. You just heard from Senator Reverend Warnock there. Hundreds of thousands of Georgians availed themselves of Saturday early voting uh, during the general election. We're encouraging every Georgian to make a plan now to vote in this runoff. Remember that the election law that Georgia Republicans passed last year in some ways had the most significant impact on runoff election administration with uh, a shorter early vote period, for example. We are encouraging all Georgians to make a plan to vote now, and I sincerely hope that the outcome of this court process is that Georgians can take advantage of a chance to vote on Saturdays. You know, your election and uh, Senator Warnock's election in 2021, it, it was to me proof that every vote counts and that who represents you matters. You just passed, and I want to congratulate you on a bipartisan bill that you authored to investigate unsolved lynchings and civil rights cold cases. It has now passed the House. It's headed to the president's desk. It's arguable nothing like that would have passed under your predecessors. And so I think about some of the opportunities that are there if there is that 51st vote. And that's things like um, codified abortion rights. We know abortion's a big deal. A judge just overturned your state's six-week abortion ban. Um, protecting voting rights, police reform, gun reform legislation. None of that has any chance, even maybe in a 50-50 Senate. So are you? is that the case that's being made to Georgia voters, that that 51st seat might be the difference between getting those things and not? Well, look, let me just add, in addition to the civil rights cold case legislation uh, that you just talked about, which passed the House yesterday and is now on its way to the president's desk, without our victories in Georgia in January of 2021, there would be no Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. There would be no bipartisan infrastructure law. We would not have done more to strengthen veterans' health care than any Congress in decades, nor would we have been able to engage in the kind of vigorous oversight and investigation of human rights abuses, of corruption, and of misconduct in the federal government, for example, that I've led as chair of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Today, we held a hearing, the result of an 18-month bipartisan investigation that exposed the truth about what's been happening to detainees held by the Department of Homeland Security who were subjected to unnecessary, invasive, and often non-consensual gynecological surgical procedures, serious abuses of constitutional and human rights. So it's not just the legislative capacity. It's also our ability to investigate abuse, corruption, and misconduct. And, and by the way, we have, we have a soundbite on that. Let me just play a little bit of that. And this is one of the former detainees, just what you're talking about, speaking about her experiences uh, with ICE. Take a look. The nurse told me I was going to get a pap smear. When the day came, they handcuffed me. They put a chain around my waist, all the way down to my ankles. When Dr. Amin comes in, he doesn't acknowledge me. He doesn't say a word. He just sits in front of me and starts prepping for the procedure, which he does not explain. Then he just says, open your legs and continues with, it's going to be cold, and inserts a white tube inside of me. He wiggles it around, roughly. 
it's horrifying. And this investigation is, is chilling. And I just to make it very clear, as you said, this investigation would not have happened had your two predecessors, yours and Raphael Warnock's predecessors, been in the United States Senate because Repub Republicans would have controlled the committees. No. Well, oversight really matters, Joy. And as you know, I ran for the Senate on a pledge to investigate abuse, corruption, misconduct, and violations of human rights. And that is what I have done as the chair of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. I have to say, and folks who just saw that testimony from Karina today, and there are dozens of women who went through what she went through, dozens of women who were subjected to unnecessary, invasive, dangerous surgical procedures while in the custody of the U.S. government. That's exactly the kind of oversight that the U.S. Congress should be undertaking. It took 18 months of bipartisan work to get there. And yes, without those victories in Georgia, we would not be in a position to conduct this oversight. And I'm going to continue conducting this oversight so long as I chair this subcommittee. Do you believe very quickly that Herschel Walker would have any interest in, in participating in these kinds of investigations if he were the senator, the other senator from Georgia, rather than Senator Warnock? I have no idea except to say this. The contrast in quality, in competence, in preparedness between Senator Warnock and his opponent is the most dramatic I have ever seen in electoral politics. Senator Warnock is an asset to this nation. He has won universal respect across the aisle in the Senate. He's gotten a lot done for Georgia, forging bipartisan relationships to do it. We cannot lose him. We will not lose him. And that's why we're encouraging Georgians to make a plan to vote. Senator John Ossoff, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here and the work that you've done on those investigations. Thank you. And up next, what modern Americans can learn from President Lincoln's struggle to preserve and protect American freedom and democracy. I will talk to two Pulitzer Prize winners, John Meacham and Nicole Hannah-Jones, when we come back after this quick break. It often feels like we've reached the apex of division here in America, but no event fractured and then transformed this nation more than the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln presided during that period, urging unity. He felt it was his sacred duty as president to preserve the union at all costs, even if it meant going to war. In 1863, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation that declared enslaved people within the rebelling states forever free. Lincoln's assassination kept him from overseeing Reconstruction. But still, after all this time, nearly 160 years, the question over how to preserve unity remains, with the battle lines of the Civil War still haunting America and placing our democracy under immediate and seemingly continual threat. Joining me now are two Pulitzer Prize winners, Nicole Hannah-Jones, staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and creator of The 1619 Project, and John Meacham, historian and author of the new book, And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. I normally would do ladies first, but I do want to start with you, John Meacham, because you wrote the book about the thing we did our intro about, Lincoln. Uh, I am fascinated with Lincoln and also with Hannibal Hamlin. I think we've talked about this before <laughs> because I feel like yeah. the quest for unity went awry with the discarding of Hamlin in favor of Andrew Johnson. And so I just unpack for me 
the job sure. that Lincoln did in trying to preserve the union and the good and the bad and the mistakes you think he might have made? Sure. Uh, not here to celebrate uh, Abraham Lincoln for moral perfection because he was morally <laughs> imperfect. Uh, but he did, I think, help us create a more perfect union. He was driven by two things, uh, really from childhood. He was an anti-slavery politician, which was not the same as being an egalitarian, right? right. Uh, every abolitionist was anti-slavery, uh, but not every anti-slavery politician was an abolitionist. Uh, and egalitarians were tragically fewer and even farther between in, in those years. But he was driven by containing slavery because he saw that the white South meant what it said when it talked about adding Cuba, adding Nicaragua, adding parts of Mexico, creating what was called the golden circle. Then Havana was going to be the center of that golden circle. And so he was very much focused on containing slavery. And as they put it in, the, in that era, but putting on a path to ultimate extinction. That was easy for a white politician to be for because they weren't in, enslaved. But he was driven by that. He was also driven by a belief in democracy and the capacity that's the whole message of the Gettysburg Address, that in fact, democracy was the best form of government to try to achieve justice. Uh, and my sense is that for all of our imperfections, Lincoln was remarkably skilled at both finding a moral core, trying to live up to it, and pushing us a little bit farther toward the right. Here's the thing about Hannibal Hamlin, uh, vice president of the United States, 1861 to 65, a Republican from Maine. Uh, I think one of the tragedies of American history is we didn't have a president, Hannibal Hamlin. Uh, he had been pushed off the ticket in 1864 by a nervous Republican Party that wanted a white Democrat, a uh, white racist from my state, uh, Andrew Johnson, uh, who went on the ticket. It was one of the most disastrous decisions in American history in a, in a country that has made a lot of disastrous decisions. <laughs> but I think what Lincoln teaches us, what Lincoln teaches us is that you have to have some moral commitment. You cannot send someone to the pinnacle of power, and I'll let you connect these dots, uh, who has no moral conviction whatever. And yeah. Lincoln wanted slavery to end and he wanted democracy to thrive. And, and you know, to that point, I think, Nicole Hannah-Jones, you've made this point and the 1619 Project is terrifies the right. And I think the reason it terrifies them and you terrify them is because you make this point. Slavery becomes the pinnacle of the moral universe of the United States. It continues to be the story. In 1877, it was the compromises made against former slave and slave people that puts us on the path to the mess we're in right now. How do we get in the sort of, you, you had a, a forum for journalists today at Howard University. It was a democracy summit for journalists. How can we, on the journalism side, get at that core race problem in a way that people will accept the message as not some sort of a threat to them, but as the truth that they need to move forward? Well, one, I think journalists have to know this history which is part of the problem, is yes. uh, too many journalists who are writing about the political landscape today haven't studied the history of how we got here. So they can't uh, relate what we're seeing to the Compromise of 1877. They can't relate the fact that um, we didn't really have democracy in this country until 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, and that these ideals of democracy were never intended to include Black people and other people of color 
And so that democracy has always been contested. So I think the first thing they have to do is they have to learn the history so that they can report that history to the public. Um, and what I have found through the 1619 Project is, yes, there is a segment of the American population that just doesn't care. They don't want to know the history. Uh, they will be impervious to the history. But I don't think that's most Americans. I think most Americans have learned a very poor history of the United States. It's a history of the United States that doesn't actually explain the country that they live in every day. And that if you can treat them as if they have some intelligence, if you can build in that that history and that understanding and connect it to the present, many Americans want to know because it's, it's perplexing based on the history we've been taught to see how do we get an insurrection on January 6th? How do we have a major political party that says it no longer really believes in democracy if democracy means multiracial people can decide who our leaders will be. But if we learn a more accurate history, uh, then the country we have makes sense. And then we know what can we do to save our democracy. Amen. I, I could not have said it better myself, but I'm going to hold on to these two brilliant, brilliant people. We're not going to let them go just yet. Nicole and John are sticking around uh, to share their thoughts on how President Biden's effort to unify this deeply disunited country stack up against Lincoln's. Interesting question. We'll be back in a sec. I guess we're going to wait for that video to come back. Let me bring back in. I think we can, can we bring back in Nicole Hannah-Jones and John Meacham? Shall we do that? Okay, good. They're here. <laughs> let me very quickly, we're waiting for Biden to speak. Uh, let me read you this quote um, from Lincoln, from your book, uh, John Meacham. For Lincoln, a world in which power was all, in which singular will trumped all, was not moral but immoral, not democratic but autocratic, not just but unjust. Please unpack. Well, I think that there has to be a moral commitment to something larger than yourself. And in the United States, at our best, uh, in human nature at its best, it has been to a pursuit of justice. It has been to a realization of a promise that uh, white Americans made, uh, but which we did not uh, live up to, which was that all are created equal. Uh, Lincoln elevated the Declaration of Independence. That's one of his singular contributions. Uh, when he said four score and seven years ago, he was going back to the Declaration, not the Constitution. He was going back to the mission statement, not to the compromised user manual, uh, yeah. which had made concessions to the slave power. And yeah. so that commitment was essential. Uh, let me uh, express my intense jealousy that I was not at your uh, at your democracy summit. Ta-Nehisi Coates and Thea Butler, Sherilyn Eiffel, that's just a few of the people who were there. I covet uh, a presence at that sometime just to listen to all those folks speak. But I want to let you have the last word on this, Nicole, because there is this fundamental question of whether the idea of a multiracial democracy can work. No one's ever really pulled it off quite. Brazil's got a lot of our same problems. South Africa does. It's difficult to do because humans are tribal. When you, as a journalist, as as an historian, do you think it is doable the way that we are now? Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> it's, right, it's, it's a difficult question, but certainly, right? Like we, it is possible because while human beings are tribal, uh, what separates us are things that we create in our head. There is no natural separation between human beings. And I think that if we truly dedicate ourselves to democracy, if we believe, uh, as John said, as our declaration said, that all men and women are created equal, then of course we can. But it is. It, it is more challenging, right? Multiracial democracy is hard, but it's certainly worth it. And mm -hmm. what we're doing at Howard and what I write about in the 1619 Project is Black Americans 
have believed that multiracial democracy is possible and have been the most ardent democratizing force in this country. So if we look to those who were on the bottom, who could have a very big vision of what democracy and inclusive vision of what democracy can be, then absolutely it's possible. But it will never be easy and it will always be contested. And I think just quickly, you know, democracy is is an idea, but we have to it is not self reinforcing. It's not self enforcing. Uh, Democracy is something that we all have to work on every single day. And um, luckily, a majority of Americans at this point still think it's worthy uh, of working toward. Amen. And I say, if you want to look to a true belief in democracy, look to the former enslaved who immediately, when they got the franchise, leaned into the idea of democracy and wholly, 100 percent, thoroughly believed it. They believed in it and they just weren't allowed to keep it. It's the if you can keep it, that's the big deal. Nicole Hannah-Jones, John Meacham, brilliant. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.